Welcome, friends, to another episode of The Conversation. My special guest today is Jason Romano, who is the host and producer of the Sports Spectrum podcast, where he interviews interviews athletes, coaches, and other personalities about the intersection of sports and faith. He's also a contributor to the Sports Spectrum magazine and writes articles uh, about firstsportspectrum.com. During his time at ESPN, his previous job for, of 17 years, Jason created and produced content for shows such as SportsCenter, Monday Night Football, Mike and Mike in the Morning, Sunday NFL Countdown, College Game Day, and Major League Baseball's All-Star Game. I first met Jason, we did, a couple years ago when he was here with his family to speak at our church services on Father's Day. Jason, thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning. Yeah, Pastor Rob, great to see you. Thanks for so much for having me. Uh, Jason, just one of the reasons we're having this conversation today is he just published a book just last month, came off the press July 2020, The Uniform of Leadership. And not long after he was here, I guess in 2017, is that when your other book came out? It came out. Actually, the book hadn't come out when I when I hang out when I was with you guys. It was it was in the process of being worked through when it came out. And the first book came out January of 2018. 18, which is yeah. uh, Learn to Forgive, which was a story about his life and his relationship with his dad. Which some of that comes up in your in your in your leadership book as well. Mm-hmm. well let's just dive in. I kind of with both of those books. And my first question: you, you mentioned in your book, maybe it was both of them, how sports was an escape for you from trauma. And and for those of who didn't read your first book, you talk about your dad's alcoholism as a major um, uh, influence, a major part of your growing up years. But this is just a question I had. I'm sure you've thought about it and maybe written about it other places. There's sort of an irony I found there, which is you had this very hard relationship with your dad and ultimately were a place where you guys were even, you know, in some ways, separated from each other as far as communication. Um, but sports was your, was your, um, your escape. But in a sense from reading both of your books, I got a sense that you got your love from sports from your father, right? Cause he was such a sports fanatic. I just wondered if, you know, you ever thought about that, um, when you think about your life. I do quite a bit actually. And it's funny because, Initially, in the relationship with my father, I always say the very thing that brought us together, which was sports, was actually what would later tear us apart for many years in the relationship that we had. But when I think about my love for sports, you know, I give credit to my my father for sure, because that's my earliest sports memories were spent with him and his father, my grandfather, George Romano. Uh, watching games on Sundays in the NFL and just sitting in the little living room. They called it a parlor. Go into the parlor and watch football. And so we would go into my grandfather's house. My dad would be there. My my grandfather would be there. And that's where I remember at six, seven years old watching football and you know baseball with them. So my love of sports absolutely stems from my father mm-hmm. and, uh, and from my grandfather too. And I think that was intentional by my dad as much as there was a lot of uh, brokenness and and the yeah. relationship was about as messed up as you could get for a father right. and son for many years. 
he always and still to this day connected with me through sports. And, uh, you know, I love sports, too. Maybe not as much as him, believe it or not. But uh, as far as being so entrenched in it. Yeah. But I love sports and I, I definitely credit my father for that. Well, what's interesting to me is just, you know, some people, not you, um, you know, when they have something about a parent that they um, have a broken a broken relationship with or, or imperfect relationship may decide to go in the opposite direction. In other words, if my dad loves X, I'm not going to love X. But I, I it's interesting that despite all of that harsh, um, you know, the trauma and the brokenness that you, you know, you still fell in love with sports and you, it changed, you know, it's, it's your life. Sports is your life. Well, I definitely went away from some of the things that would remind me of my dad on, on so many different levels. Number one was I never drank alcohol to this day. I still don't drink. And it's not that I'm against drinking alcohol. I just saw what it did to my dad that I just didn't, I don't want to take any chance on having that happen to me, potentially then me having that influence on my daughter. So I, I I walked away from that. I didn't want to be like that. You know, there were many things in the way that he acted in the way that he is that I've sort of inherited and I have to work hard to try and not be that way, whether it's with my daughter, even just the idea of being present in my life. My dad was not present in a lot of ways. So I turned around and said, I want to do exactly what he didn't do for me to my daughter. And now she's 16 and I've been a big part of her life and been in her life all her life. And that was always a goal of mine, an intentional goal to, to sort of not do what my dad did towards me in my life. So there are things that I definitely saw in him, you know, even marriage, you know, he had two broken marriages with my mom and then my stepmom. And, you know, I've been married 21 years and, and I don't just stay with my wife just to do that because my dad didn't, but I work hard at my marriage because I saw what happened with my father. So there's a lot of what he had, uh, you know, influence that I didn't want to do as well, but sports was the one I stayed with. That's for sure. It's great. You know, one of the things you mentioned that I thought was so powerful, again, this is just helping people get to know you a little bit better, although it's very, you know, diving into the deep end. But you mentioned in one of your books, I can't remember now, I think you were giving a word of a speech uh, about, is it your grandparents, I think, right? Um, um, And you had this moment, um, which was just powerful about, you, you mentioned this sense of amazing gratitude about these two people that were so influential in your life, maybe all the more so in light of your father's situation, but also at the same time, this inner sadness that, you know, you, you, life just shows up, you know, you don't, you don't, you can't um, uh, garner or govern your, govern your emotions. And you had this moment and you were speechless and so one, I thought it was just such a powerful moment, but I just wonder, you, you talk about some of the lessons, um, how that moment has, you know, carried through in your life and, and what you learned from it. You know, it's interesting, uh, Rob, I've done, I don't want to say thousands, but I've done a lot of interviews with both books now being out. And I've never been asked this question about that moment. Uh, and it is a powerful moment. It was, uh, I'll give you a little background. So my grandparents were my dad's parents and you know my they had one son it was my father and so as much as they loved him and cared for him and were there for him you know my dad had that really difficult turn in his life and they struggled you know they had a lot of pain in their lives too um, watching their son kind of spiral out of control and then their son had three boys me and my two brothers and so we were in essence the pride and joy of our grandparents lives mm-hmm. and they were in our lives 
way more, in fact, than my dad was. And they were there to, they felt an obligation to pick up the pieces that my dad had left behind to be there for us. So when my mom was out working three jobs and, su- and supporting us, and I had the best mom you could imagine, my grandparents were there to say, listen, we'll take them to the games. We'll take them to Toys R Us. We'll take mm-hmm. them to the movies, to the restaurants, and just have uh, let them have a childhood that they, they deserve to have, mm-hmm. even though our son isn't there to be their father. So mm-hmm. we get to, this was September of 97, 1997, and it was their 50th wedding anniversary. And we wanted to honor them, uh, my grandparents and George and Mary Romano were their names. They've both since passed, but we wanted to honor them uh, for who they were and for what they've done for us. So we had it set up almost like a wedding where you had like a a head table at the front and my grandparents were up there and me and my two brothers were there. My dad was not at this 50th anniversary. He should have been, obviously, but he was still struggling with his alcoholism. So we didn't even invite him to his own parents' wedding anniversary because it was and such a bad didn't come your wedding either, right? From what I he remember. Not. Two yeah. years later, he wasn't at my wedding. And so my dad was in a real bad state at this time. But we still wanted to honor our grandparents. So it was me and my brothers and my grandparents all sitting up at this sort of head table. And everybody in front of us was sort of sitting at these smaller tables Um friends, mostly family members and people like that. This was literally a month after I had gotten my first job out of broadcasting uh, out of college. And it was a radio uh, station in Albany, New York, WGY. And uh, actually, Rochester can get GY every so often at night uh, Mm -hmm. if they turn on the AM dial, 8, 10 AM. And I had just gotten my first job. So I'm 23, 24, literally starting my career out. And uh, my mom... Uh, who loved my grandparents, ironically, and stayed very close to them, even though my dad and my mom divorced. She was a big part in this 50th anniversary dinner. And she says, hey, Jason, I want you and uh, your brothers to, to share a word or speak if you could. And I was like, sure, that's fine. And I'm 23. And I hadn't done a lot of public speaking at all, really, and not known how to carry myself or how to even stand right. up and speak. But I stood up there and I just started talking about my grandparents for a few minutes. And uh you know, I had this really this sense of joy and appreciation for all that they had sacrificed for me and my brothers and, uh, you know, continued to do a few for a few more years, but really helped us have a childhood that we deserve to have. And that meant so much to us. And they gave everything that they had for us. And, you know, just thinking about them now, uh, I really I, I get a little emotional because I think about the impact. If they had not been around, I don't know what would have happened to us, to be wow. quite honest with you. My mom was an amazing mom and is an amazing mom. And she was just trying to put food on the table for us. But who was there when she was, wasn't was there to work and do the things that she had to do? Well, it was my grandparents. Mm-hmm. And so I stood up there and I had this moment where I'm thanking them, I'm honoring them and I start losing it and I get very emotional and I don't get emotional hardly ever, just being honest. But mm-hmm. when I talk about my family, especially in a public setting, I've now done this maybe four or five times since that day, I lose it because I think about all that we've been through as a family. Yeah. And obviously we all love our family and our, and our, you know, we remember when we were kids and growing up, I lost it. And and I had this moment of appreciation, this moment of sadness. I think that this, the crying actually didn't just stem mm-hmm. from what they had sacrificed, but it stemmed a little bit from the void that we had with no father. Um, and at that point, I'm 23. My other brother's 21. My little brother's maybe 18 or 19. So we're all still in formative years here. 
Right. And my dad's not around. And yet my grandparents were. And so I was thankful for them. I had yeah. a joy about them, but my dad wasn't. And, uh, and I had sadness there that carries me through to today. Now the dad situation, my dad and I are reconciled, you know, I'm 46 years old now. So it's a different time of life for me than it was when I was 23. But I do think about my grandparents. I mean, every day, just in how grateful I am for them. Well, you know, one thing, I don't know if you've ever listened to this and you you might find it interesting if you haven't, but it really struck me. It's why the question comes up, this, you know, combination of gratitude and inner sadness and it's the talk, you know, 46 million strong that Brene Brown gave. I don't know if you've ever heard it. I, I know who she is. I don't think I've heard it, but. Well, do it when you're bored. Uh, she, 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 it's a talk on vulnerability and yes. courage. And it would, it's probably the, um, the top three or four of all Ted talks. It's, it's on the top 10, five. But anyway, she yes. said something that I, it stuck with me so powerfully. And she said, She's talking about courage and vulnerability. And she said, one of the great insights was she said, you, we, I learned in my research and in my life that you cannot numb emotion selectively. And I didn't even know what she meant at first. And she said, here's what happened. When we numb the negative or uncomfortable emotions, and you could name some, shame, et cetera, we also, in a sense, are turning off joy and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and gladness and pleasure and and she, so basically she's saying you have to go um, down that road and experience the negative emotions if you want to experience the others. And what I thought came to mind when I read your note. So anyway, you might, you might listen to that again. You might appreciate it. That's really good. And, and I'm going to take a watch to that. Uh, it makes me think of that day again because something that took place as I started breaking down and kind of speechless and sharing what I wanted to share about my grandparents, my mom was watching this. She's sitting in the crowd and she jumps in as I just am speechless and losing it. And she says, Jay, why don't you tell him about your new job? And I thought, why is my mom doing that? (laughs) And I did. I jumped in and I said, yeah, I just got this new job at WGY and I'm working as a radio producer. But back to my grandparents. And I saw what my mom was doing though. She didn't want to see me in a state like that. So she was trying to protect me from going into this place that would be really sad and really, um, you know, bad memories, whatever it was. And so she was trying to protect me. Thinking back, it was a funny moment, obviously, and everybody laughed and it was kind of, kind of, you know, a silly, silly second there. But I think about my mom and she, oh, she wasn't trying to do this in a bad way. She was trying to protect me, but I wish she didn't when I think about it, because you sometimes just have to allow the emotion to, to take over. And it becomes yeah. more real and raw. And if it's uncomfortable for people to watch, that's okay. Uh, but she couldn't, she she was very uncomfortable with seeing me comfortable uncomfortable because of the memories that she had walked through as well with us and the struggle. So she's just trying to protect us and say, No, Jay, tell them the good things that are happening in your life. And I said, I get it, mom. But I think sometimes, and I don't know if this is in Brene's talk, it might be. Sometimes we just have to let it out and be emotional and be vulnerable. And that's okay, even if it is uncomfortable. So I want to talk about your your newer book, but let me ask you one more question about sure. um, your your backstory. Um, and I should say this: we can. It's not my interview, but my, I grew up uh, my uh, with a parent as an alcoholic as well. So uh, mm. I can appreciate some of your story. Yeah. Um, but if you had to give one piece of advice, I mean, somebody listening um, who's a child of an alcoholic, who's who's the Jason Romano, uh, you know, uh, twenty years ago, yeah. uh, what would it be? 
child of an alcoholic, one piece of advice. Um, I mean, I guess it depends on where I'm talking to them in their stage of life too, because you know, it could be 40 years old, right? 40 years old. Let's, if we talk into a a 40 year old, I would say, you know, forgiveness is, is vital because I think that a lot of people, and I know that's sort of the center of my book, but that's really been the great lesson for me. That's helped me move forward in the relationship with my dad was being able to forgive him uh, yeah. to set to set me free, not to set him free. And yeah, that was that was a big thing because I was the one that was caught up in the bondage, caught up in the trap and the pain that I had felt from him, but not wanting to let him uh, you know, to treat him and to forgive him, treat him properly, forgive him, whatever, to see him as God saw him, man, I was I was just this pain was 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 I'm trying to think of the right word, simmering, I guess, up yeah. inside of me. And I then I would lash out back at him. And the fact that I I finally was able to come to a place to forgive him is what I think was the the most freeing thing that I've ever experienced in my life. Uh, and so child of alcoholics, the and this is really all stages of life. It took me till I was 40 to do it. But for, for childs of alcoholics, mm. you know, it is a disease. I didn't want to hear that because all I saw was my dad and I don't right. care if it's a disease, you're still my father. So stop right. treating us this way. Don't blame it on the disease. But I see that it is a disease. Right. Um, you can still love the person and not be in their lives. Sometimes you have to set boundaries. Right. But I think the biggest thing is forgiveness. And again, remembering that it's not about what that alcoholic parent yeah. of yours has done. It's about what God has done for you and why we need that freedom in forgiving him. So I like it. It's about your own freedom. I like what you're saying. Yeah. Um, so back to, or turning the page to the uniform of leadership, you, you, if I had to sum up, you know, so maybe I'll be wrong. It's a test for someone who's read your book (laughs) of of what I think is the impetus of the book. In other words, you know, obviously it's about leadership. It's about your time at ESPN, but the, thing you said early about having, even if I didn't, if I never had met you and read your book, I'd say this about Jason Romano. Maybe this is, it may be, you know, driven by your, um, your childhood, I guess, um, or just your personality, but very driven. You know, you talk a lot about wanting to succeed, wanting to perform, you know, wanting to um, climb the ladder. Um, This is a big part of how your book opens, but you talk about this term destination mindset and the, you know, these crucial conversations with Tony Dungy and his, um, his assistant. But I just wonder if you could, you know, um, take a little bit, t- say a little bit about how, how that concept, if I got it right, is central to the idea of your book. Yeah. Destination focus is, is definitely part of it. Um, it's, it's part of what I think was wearing the uniform of leadership, uh, backwards. If you want to, if you want to use the term of the title yeah. of the book, yeah. because I was, and, and have been for a very long time driven and focused on achievement and accomplishment, climbing the corporate ladder, like you mentioned. And in doing that, I was always thinking about where I might end up, where I wanted to go. And it's funny, as a follower of Christ, you know, the destination is is the most important part of our journey and knowing that we're going to be with him forever. But in the workplace or just in the worldly perspective of, of destinations, when I've focused myself on the destination, I've lost the ability to be present in the moment right. and enjoy the journey. And that's where the beauty, I think, the blessings really truly come from is right. the journey. 
Uh, The second chapter of the book is called Bloom Where You're Planted. And that idea comes from that day with Coach Dungy, Tony Dungy and his assistant, Jessica. And Coach Dungy asked me this question uh, that changed my life forever. He said, how do you live out your faith in the workplace here at ESPN? And, you know, first of all, Coach Dungy asking me a question that (laughs) profoundly changed my life is not something I ever thought would happen. You know, I was going to be the ones to ask him all the questions and take him around ESPN that day. Uh, But he took an interest in me just to ask that one question. And I didn't have an answer for him. I didn't think because I worked at ESPN that I couldn't live out my faith or I could live out my faith. I thought I this is not this is no there's no way I could do that here. And uh that's because I was so focused on the destination that I didn't recognize the mission yeah. field that God had allowed me to be a part of at ESPN. And that's where Jessica jumps in and says, listen, right. you don't get it. Look where you work. You can right. bloom where you're planted and you can be right. a light right where you are. And Powerful. at that, yeah, at that moment, it just changed my perspective on, on being so focused on the destination yeah. that I would miss what was happening right in front of me every single day, being a great teammate to the people I worked with, because the destination is not the bad part of this. It's just if our focus is all about the destination, we miss the present moments that we can really see God work. I don't even know if this resonates with you or, or makes perfect sense, but when as we just got done talking about the moment with your grandparents and the negative emotion, which clashed with the gratitude and that's almost a destination, a moment, or, or I mean, destination mindset. In other words, are there times in my life, in your life, in anyone's life where we don't want to be in that present emotion and <laughs> we want to be somewhere yeah. else? And the lesson that you, you know, kind of learned in our learning um, in, in, in the emotional life, as well as in, in, in our present, you know, life being present with the people we're, we're with is, you know, um, sometimes we want to be to the destination because it's where we find our, you know, success or we think, right. We want to climb the corporate ladder, but sometimes we just don't want to live in the present because it's uncomfortable. But in both cases, what I'm learning from, from this conversation maybe, and, and, you know, Brene helps is to say, listen, you know, life is lived in the present, Um, God is with us in the present, you know, I am the great I am. And, and that means both, um, the, the joys of the moment and the sadnesses of the moment and our job as followers of Christ, I suppose, maybe it's everybody's job, but all the more as a follower of Jesus is to invite God there, allow him to be with us there because maybe that's how we grow. Maybe that's how we mature. Maybe that's how we become fully human. And so anyway, it just made me think of that idea. Well, have we ever been in a time where we are so focused on the destination that we miss the present in a pandemic in 2020? And we think about, man, I wish this thing would be over and we could go back to what we want to go back to or go to the next thing. Right. And if we, if we're not careful and I'm not saying right. we, I don't want the pandemic to leave. Right. I do. I want, I want us to, to get to that point where we can not have to wear a mask everywhere we go. Right. However, there's blessings in this, you know, God's with us through this. And I think we're going to look back someday. I know our kids are going to look back and remember this, right. uh, you know, in a way, maybe not so fondly, but there's going to be lessons that we get out of this and blessings the fact that I got to spend and have been spending the last six months, right. and I can't believe it's been six months now, I but know. six months with my family 
right. almost every single day. I haven't I traveled. I haven't gotten on an airplane since February. Yeah. And that was something I was doing pretty much every month, multiple yeah. times a month. So there are blessings in yeah. this. And if we, if we get so focused on this thing yeah. trying to end, we might miss the present moments and the really blessed and real blessings that come through well, having think, to walk through this. You know, spending time with our family, listen, spending time with ourselves mm-hmm. and even spending time with our God. All of those could be um, things that we do and maybe we'll look back. Who knows? This isn't over yet. But <laughs> say, you know, kind of like uh, Joseph in prison or whatever and say, you know, um, there's a verse, I think it's in the 108th Psalm. It's a history psalm. It goes over all this long litany of the history, and it says, you know, Joseph um, was, you know, in, 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 you know, had shackles on his feet and his hands, and it says something like, "But the word of the Lord proved him true." I've always stuck with me. In other words, there was something, and even the shackle part isn't even mentioned in Genesis, but it's mentioned by the writer of the hundred. I think it's the hundred eighth psalm or hundred fifth psalm. But yeah. I thought, isn't that interesting? That that you know, I would imagine that moment. God, God could have. Um, why did it take twenty something years for Joseph to go from point A to point B? Well, it wasn't because you know, um, for any other reason, I guess that Joseph had to mature into the person. It's one thing to have the keys to the kingdom to be the viceroy of Egypt, but if you don't know how to run something that big, right? Back to your your point about the uniform of leadership. If you think leadership is about, you know, uh, getting your picture in the paper or, um, you know, the perks of the office, can you imagine? I mean, I think about even the, even all the criticism and, and fun we can have about the presidential election. Would you want to be the president of the United States today? Oh, my goodness. Or the governor? Oh, thank you. <laughs> or New York City or whatever, you know, of Connecticut. So um, yeah. it, leadership, um, you have to be forged in in crisis. I think you talk about some of that. You talk about patience. Um, I loved your words about um, Coach Pete Carroll. There's so many great things about his active patience and yeah. even Drew Brees. You know, so this is a, this is a nod for people to read your book. I mean, it didn't surprise me. I don't know Drew Brees, but what a, what a, you know, it it, it it both his his um, everydayness. You know, he he didn't he wasn't a superstar. You know, it was LeBron's day as much as his day, as you say in your book. But yeah. um, I loved his 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 casual attitude, his his openness, and his commitment to task. So um, there's something to be said about that. I'm sure he didn't wake up that way. I mean, <laughs> no. When you're hanging out with Drew Brees and you're spending a day with him, uh, and you watch him and how he's very calculated and very intentional about his day. Like he was focused on the task at hand, but he also knew that in two weeks he was going to training camp. Yeah. And he had to get his reps in. He had to get his his workout in. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he said that's how he honored God, by being excellent, working hard, and, you know, making sure that he was going to be prepared and ready so that when training camp came around, he wasn't starting from scratch. Like, he was already well into this, into this ready to cook and ready to go. And part of that just happened to overlap into his day at ESPN where I got to hang out with him. Well, you know what I was hoping you were going in your book? Uh, when I read that chapter, was that you that you took a couple passes from him? When, <laughs> but he, <laughs> Let me tell you something. I was sitting there watching him throw passes to his agent because it was there wasn't a lot of people. It was just three of us, right. and I thought, man, how cool would it be to catch a pass from Drew Brees right now? Right. But how do I work that in? Do I say, 
Hey, Drew, can I catch one too? Like I, I'm trying to be professional here. Right. Uh, I did think, I think he underhanded a ball to me like at the end and I caught it. I was like, all right, I caught a pass from Drew Brees. I did catch a pass from Michael Vick once at ESPN, yeah. ironically in, in uh, the studio of the NFL countdown area right. and studio E at ESPN. So I felt like I have had my opportunities to catch a few passes. Right. You, you used one line and I, I, it might've been in the, in the Jessica chapter. I don't even remember now, but I, I thought it was interesting. Let your performance teach you where your inner work must be done. Almost like a Gandhi line for Jason Romano, but what, what, what is, unpack that. Unpack that. Let your performance teach you where your inner work needs to be done. I mean, I think so much of what we do as people is performance-based, you know, as we're, we're judged by our accomplishments and our achievement from outsiders. I think, you know, internals, inner, inner circles and your family, you know, they don't, I don't think as much judge you on what you have accomplished. My, my, hopefully my wife and my daughter would love me whether I've won an Emmy award or not, you know, whether I have a podcast or not, they just love me because I'm, you know, their husband or dad. But I think when we go outside to the world, the performance is based on our achievement, our accomplishment. And we're so judged. We're even, uh, I guess, evaluated as people on what we've accomplished. Oh, he's a great person because he won the Super Bowl, Drew Brees. He's a great person because he won this. And we certainly know that there are a lot of people who've won things that maybe didn't represent themselves well. But it's the inner work in that performance. Really, that's where the battle is because the battle of achievement and performance, but understanding that is, you know, is that really the best way? Personally, for me, I'm going to say it like this, the best way for me to represent Christ, because am I wearing the uniform properly means to me, am I loving God first? Am I keeping him at the center of everything I'm doing? Then am I serving others? And then am I loving myself or taking care of myself? It's the I am third model. Yeah. And I think the inner work is done when we, when we're trying, or the battle, if you will, that inner battle mm-hmm. of who are we putting first each time we right. wake up? What uniform are we going to put on? And listen, I know the, the, the most devout followers of Christ and, you know, I put myself in, in there as well, who struggle with that. Because we're so focused on our, I mean, we're just a selfish nature yeah. in within us, uh, yeah. a narcissism within a lot of us, especially with social media, right. to want to have people, to want to feel wanted, to have people tell you that you've done a great job or whatever, mm-hmm. and to you know do whatever you need to do within yourself to show them that you've done a good job. And that's where the uniform is backwards. That's where the battle, I think, internally, that's what I meant, I think, when I wrote that was right. it's an inner battle in performance versus God, I trust you, God, I'm seeking you first. And then how can I come in and serve others first before I even think about myself? Yeah, no, just listening to you say that just as a help for people to understand the title of your book, the uniform of leadership, that's a good way to understand it. Let your performance teach you, for instance, let's say I'm, you know, whether I'm a sports star or a pastor star or a you know, whatever. It could be anything. It doesn't have to be any, you know, but the point is if somebody is, um, if, if I'm in a position where somebody is, um, um, giving me, um, I don't know, compliments or I'm seeking for those compliments, or maybe I'm in a moment and what, what is going on in my heart? Is it a back to your, even your moment with your grandparents? Is it, is it, is it gratitude 
or is it um, self-absorption, you know, kind of a thing. And, and I love that, that line, even when I think of the Drew Brees story, and you have several in your book, not, um, but I just think, I love a guy, I think you said the day that he was walking on ESPN was the same year he'd won the Super Bowl. Is that right? Yeah. So he, he won the Super Bowl in February of 2010. He's at ESPN in July of 2010, promoting his new book, coming off of a Super Bowl, Super Bowl MVP. So the whole point was, listen, you just reached the highest pinnacle as an athlete. You don't need to get your workout in at ESPN. You could take a day off, can't you? And uh, that's not how he viewed it. But not only that, but even not only the workout, but just the the attitude that he displayed, at least as you write, you know, and he was asking questions about LeBron. In other words, if, if there was ever a time in his career where he could have been, you know, one up in everybody or felt like he was king for a day. It was then, right? Today, we'd all be, you know, uh, you know, uh, part the waters to, 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 to talk to Drew Brees. I mean, he's still a super megastar, but that was certainly uh, the height or a height. So let me ask you another uh, a question. You, you, uh, it kind of tells a little bit about your story. Your, 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 you, you mentioned early in your book about um, Bob Lee, who everybody or not everybody that knows ESPN knows, but sure. he said something to you, just one sentence. And, and I guess that I felt the impact of reading it, you know, when I think about somebody who matters to me saying, giving me a word of, of, of encouragement and of value um, that I would imagine just meant the world to you. And it's, what is it, what is what you might say a little bit about what he said, but then how important is that what he did a demonstration of what good leaders can do to help others? Yeah. So Bob Lee, by the way, I mean, I don't think there's any other, there's any other outward facing talent that I worked with. So there's a lot of producers and people behind the scenes that had an impact, but Bob probably had the biggest impact from, people who were on air, people that you would see, recognize, and watch at ESPN. In 2000, late 2003, I had left the radio side to go work on the television side. And my assignment was to work on a show called Outside the Lines, hosted by Bob Lee, created by Bob Lee. And uh, you know, if anybody knows anything about ESPN, the two people you think of right away are Bob Lee and Chris Berman. Both of those two guys are legends, worked right. at ESPN, Virtually within the first few weeks of ESPN's existence, they were there. And they were there all the way until really last year when uh, mm-hmm. Bob retired. So they have been there for 40 plus years, both of them, and, and had seen it all. And so I come to, to this new role, this new job as a talent booker for Outside the Lines. And this was a show that there was a lot of stress working on that show because it was topics that were not easy to talk about. That's why it's called Outside the Line. So it was really these difficult topics that are more talked about, I think, today in sports. But back in 2003, 2004, ESPN was more known for just the sports on the field. And this was a tough show to work on and book. So I'd worked for a couple months on the show. And, uh, you know, I was just in awe of Bob and watching him and how he, he operates. And he came to me a couple days in, you know, a couple months in, I should say, and, and said to me, Jason, you know, do you ever want to be a producer at ESPN? I said, you mean a TV producer? He's like, yeah. He's like, well, I want you to know you have what it takes. You got the chops to to do this if you want to keep going. And uh, you're really good at what you do. 
And that's not like your grandmother saying that. This is a guy. <laughs> right? Correct. My grandmother would say that every day about anything yeah, I was yeah. doing. But Bob Lee, he didn't have to say that to me because he's worked with tons of producers in his career. And to hear that from him, a couple things took place. Number one, I settled in in the role that I was in right there. Like I was like, all right, I know Bob's got my back. He believes in me and I want to do well for him. Like I want to keep striving, kind of like what Drew Brees said. I want to be great for my teammates. Well, that was how I viewed it. Now that Bob Lee is saying that I have what it took, I wanted to prove to him or keep striving to to help him and help the show out. But it also gave me this confidence. And it had only been about three or three plus years that I had been at ESPN, but it gave me this confidence to kind of go forward and seeing Bob as this amazing example of leadership on including others. And I know we talk about inclusion. It's kind of a buzzword that you hear not only in work, but just in society and certainly in the church. But Bob didn't have to do that with me. Again, I was just, at least the way I viewed it, I was just a booker. I was a talent producer. I was one of 15 who worked on that show. So he didn't have to single me out, but he knew if we're all going to work together as a team, that each person individually had to feel like they belonged and that they were worth it. And so Bob pointed me out, I hope, and I'm almost positive knowing who Bob is, that he did that with every other person too. Wow. And so we come together every day and work as a team and realize, oh, what a great leadership lesson this is from Bob of including others, of making sure that every single person knew their value. And you don't have to be in a position like Bob Lee to do that. But Bob was in a position where he could have said, I'm Bob Lee and you're not. And he didn't. He said, I'm Bob Lee and you're part of my team. Let's do this together. And, uh, you know, I asked him that question. The day the book released, I had Bob on like a webinar with a few of, uh, you know, some people who were on my book release team. And Bob said, listen, that's just how I viewed my job. Yeah, I'm on TV, but I can't do anything that you see on TV without the team of 10 to 12 behind me helping to make this work. You can probably relate to this, Rob, because as a pastor, you're the front facing person, but you know, those services, and I've seen it at Browncroft. So I know those services do not happen without a team of people behind you and you are empowering them, equipping them and and showing them that they have value and what they're doing is important. And uh, so what a great lesson from the general, as we called him, Bob Lee. Yeah, no, I love that. Now I didn't know that. And you know what, what else I think is, and this may, this might sound like an, you know, um, an extreme an analogy or, or, but what made me think of it when you mentioned that, when I think about listening to somebody I respect, I mean, deeply respect, say a word that was affirming to me, whatever it might be. I think of, um, when Jesus said to Peter, if you remember this story in the Bible, when he, you know, Peter, who obviously had lots of reasons to want to maybe, um, give up on himself because he, he, he had some, problems and some (laughs) but jesus said to him before that great you know um time of trouble in his own life time of tremendous failure he said you know satan has desired to sift you as wheat but i have prayed for you and um and then you know he says a few more words but i thought i you know i wonder if peter you know took those words to, first of all, Jesus was, you know, uh, certainly, you know, a major figure and a major figure in his life and someone who he came to appreciate as the very son of God and to look him in the face and say in so many words, you know, 
you're, I know you're going to, you're, you're in the, you're in the grind, uh, you're in the, you're in the grit, uh, in the mill and, and, and tough times are coming, but I believe in you mm-hmm. and I'm going to pray for you. And even when he said, you know, uh, uh, you, uh, you shall be Peter and upon this rock, you know, certainly was an irony. It was perhaps not reflective of the true character of Peter. But, but when people speak those words to our lives, you know, especially people you respect, right? I mean, as you say, we, we hope we get that from our grandparents and our friends, but our spouses, but to hear it from yeah. a guy like Bob, who was um, anyone that's in the business that you were in and are in, you know, like you say, he, he's a legend. So let me ask yeah, a couple it, questions. It is big. I'm sorry to interrupt you. It is big to, to hear that. And it was huge for my career just to hear it from yeah. somebody like Bob Lee. You know, so. It says something to you and me because we're, we're leaders and people listening. How are, are how are we playing that role to other people, right? Yes. You know, how can we look people in in and speak into their lives in in uh, in ways that we that can that can make a long lasting impact? Absolutely. So ask you two quick questions before I let you go just for fun. Sure. Um, you know, because you've, you, those who will, who have read your book or will read it. So I should say, will read it because it's so new. will we'll see, you know, what it, it, I, I so could appreciate your love for sports showing up at ESPN, as you say, kind of like a, you know, a, a nobody and you're, you're, you're in the heaven of sports. You know, it's like a, you know, who knows what the analogies would be. It's like, I don't know. A, Someone who loves the movies gets to sit, get go to Paramount Pictures and hang around or something, <laughs> something like that. Um, but I think of now these, you know, twenty years later or whatever it's been. Who who has been your favorite interview uh, uh, that you've done in your career? So this is an interview at ESPN. That's what, is that because I've I've done yeah. five hundred interviews since leaving ESPN. So there's a lot of uh, more current interviews that I've done with Sports Spectrum, but. I'll give you an ESPN answer on that. So my favorite interview, I'll tell you my favorite day at ESPN, which will kind of coincide with the interview. So Daryl Strawberry, who is one of my heroes, um, I'm surprised he hasn't even come up yet because he usually does quickly when I talk about uh, when I talk about my time as a sports fan. But he is, uh, you know, one of two or three heroes that I had as a kid. And Daryl and I met in May of 2009 when he came to ESPN to do a day of interviews and mm-hmm. he was promoting his book straw. And I remember getting assigned that and thinking, this is a dream come true. Like I'm meeting my hero. I'm spending the day with my hero. This is going to be amazing. And I expected that day to be where we talked about the 1986 New York Mets. And that's not what happened. Uh, we ended up talking about family, faith, addiction, I was going to say, parenting story, yeah, yeah. everything, right? So, uh, without going too long, that day I watched Daryl do interviews on Sports Center, on Mike and Mike, on you know other ESPN shows outside the lines, and he would always point to his faith, and mm-hmm. you know I didn't really understand it. I don't think at that time that the job I had in that day was being used by God to bring Daryl Strawberry to ESPN to tell millions of people about the redemptive work of Christ in his life. Mm-hmm. And that's so, I don't, you don't think about it like that when you're doing your job. Mm-hmm. You just think about booking guests, bringing them to Bristol, having them go on shows and, oh, he's my hero from 1986 with the Mets. Right. And then you look back and you realize, oh my gosh, like I had nine interviews set up that day. And Daryl, when he was asked about his book or his redemptive story, always answered about how God had done the work in his life. Wow. And now it's it's a testimony that's going out over the ESPN airwaves wow. 
for millions of people to watch and hear yeah. and listen to. So yeah. I think kind of, that day for sure. In a way, that's the Jessica, you know, encouragement lived out. Here you are, yeah. you know, thinking you're in, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, something that's not a, a place where you can do ministry. And here's a guy who um, is a is a is an international sports, uh, um, you know, person in you know the mecca of sports broadcasting, talking about his faith in Jesus Christ. You know, I mean, it's pretty cool. Right. Yeah, there's no doubt. Last question: Whether it's ESPN or Sports Spectrum, you know, since now you just said you've you've just added 500 interviews. <laughs> yeah. Who's out there? They, whether it's a sports person or a person of faith, because you that's your intersect. Who's out there today? You know, um, that you'd like to get that you haven't gotten uh, as an interview. Hmm. Good question. Um, I have like a little bucket list of people that I would like to talk to. Um, Stephen Curry from the Golden State Warriors is somebody I would love to to just chat with and learn a, lo- a little bit more about his faith. Um, Tim Tebow, I think, is the name that everybody would kind of put to the forefront and assume that we've talked to, which we actually haven't. We've done 500 interviews. No, I'm surprised. Yeah, I'm surprised. Yeah. Tim's a tough one. He's a hard guy to get a hold of. So okay. we're hoping someday. Good. And uh, I would love to just talk to him on a deep level on the intersection of sports and faith. I think he's very good at living that out every day on ESPN or wherever his his ministry is. But I would literally, I would like to go deeper into that that mixture of recognizing that God had placed him as a quarterback in the NFL, as a broadcaster and this platform that he's raised him to. Uh, and recogn- when he recognized that that intersection of sports and faith could to, could exist. So Tebow is certainly someone. I have a few other people, um, some authors. You know, I just had Lecrae, the hip-hop artist, on uh, our podcast. And that's a guy that I've wanted to I talk to. I'm going to to it. Is it already out? It's not out yet. It comes out in the uh, second week of September. So it's coming out soon. But that's one that I was really fascinated by. And I've had to, I wanted to have him on for three years. So we finally had him on. All right, so I just came up with one very, very final question for fun, and maybe sure. you'll pass because maybe this is inappropriate. But ask it; I don't care. Go ahead. Because um, this is outing somebody. If you if you were going to out somebody, that is to say, a professional athlete who's a Christian. That's what I mean by outing them. Okay. In other words, who would surprise us? You know what I mean? To say, did you know that? And maybe this is not a good question. I mean, maybe. No, people, it's okay. But is there someone you'd say? But you probably didn't realize that you know Tom Brady was a follower of Jesus. <laughs> I wish I could tell you it was Brady. Um, I've never talked to Brady, so I don't, yeah. I don't, yeah. uh, don't know his faith. Um, I would say this: I think some of the broadcasters uh, yeah. that you watch, you might not recognize, are people of faith. So we had James Brown on uh, from CBS Sports a couple okay. times actually, and people watch JB. They see him on 60 Minutes. They see oh, him on yeah. CBS times. Sports. He's a legend. You want to talk about legends? Yeah. He's a legend that I've gotten to know in the business. He has a deep, deep faith in Jesus, Love and that. and you might not know that because you don't see him no, in I the secular know. or in the uh, Christian space often. Yeah. So guys like JB, some of the um, broadcasters on ESPN that I worked with, um, yeah. some of that I didn't even know. This is the weird part. I'm not going to name all the names because I'll start yeah. having to name everybody. But yeah. there were some people that I didn't even know were Christians until I left ESPN, and then wow. they saw why I left, and they said, "Hey, I'm a believer too." And I'm like, "Why didn't we talk?" When I was working at ESPN, right. uh, but it was really cool to find out that there are some other people awesome. uh, within those walls that are believers. So, 
Well, Jason, listen, thank you so much for the time. I know it. Uh, we started late and you've been a gracious uh, guest and uh, I look forward to listening to Lecrae and others and just, uh, and I want to strongly encourage people. I mean, I read your book in preparation for this, but I'm so glad that I did. So I want to encourage people to read both of your books, but The Uniform of Leadership, which just came out, is a great story about you, about life, about um, what calling and I love this, you know, this, the, the performance teaches you about your inner work, you know, the uniform of leadership. So I encourage people to read the book and maybe we can talk again. Absolutely. Anytime, Pastor Rob. Thanks so much for having me. Always good Thank to you. see you. And uh, let's do it again. All right. Thanks, Jason. Have a great day. You too.